Now moving on. We are to. Everyone and welcome to episode 28 of Plot Devices. This is the movie and TV show where two critics go at things. I hope the zombies don't get us since 28 episodes later. That was the courteous joke we've done this. We had a whole discussion before this to figure it out, but it's the only thing that works, darn it. Uh, my co-host Noah Guzman is also here. Noah, you're a horror fan. Please tell me you appreciated that reference. 28 episodes later, gotta say, it is about time for the zombies to be pounded down our doors um, because that's what our fans are like. Okay, our fans are like zombies milling us over in public. Psych, nobody's actually doing that, Brandon. Um, Brandon, what can we get into? We have very exciting um, animation focus today, it feels like. It feels like it, yeah, which is weird because we only really have one animation topic, but it is a big one and we will get to it. We have a full stack show for you guys, a lot of things going on in the world of movies. We have a ton of TV stuff because Memorial Day weekend, as we're recording this, was just dead set on dropping everything all at once. Uh, we got Star Wars celebration things, we got trailer news, but we figured first and foremost, we should get into some a little bit serious stuff as first and foremost. We just lost Ray Liotta at the age of 67 this past week. Uh, no cause of death has been reported as of yet. Uh, of course, Liotta, best known as Henry Hill in Goodfellas. He's amassed over 100 credits to his name. Field of Dreams, Copland, Marriage Story, a very notable cameo in B-Movie, which a lot of the internet has been taking to. Uh, he did also film several projects prior to his death. He was filming a movie called Dangerous Waters. He will star next in Elizabeth Banks's Cocaine Bear, which sounds absolutely ridiculous. Uh, that is set for next year, but... Also lost in the world of movies today, we lost well-known composer Evangelist, originally known as Evangelist Odysseus uh, Papathanasio, passed away at 76 this past week. He was suffering from a lot of health problems in the last year. There have been reports that COVID uh, complications may have had something to do with it. That has not been confirmed as of yet, but he was suffering from a lot of pre-existing conditions as of yet. Uh, he lived a very long life, a lot of really exciting life if you look into his, uh, into his history. He's probably best known for his work on Hugh Hudson's Olympic drama, Chariots of Fire, which he won an Oscar for in 1982, as well as his seminal work on Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and the PBS series Cosmos, A Personal Voyage, hosted by Carl Sagan. He was incredibly prolific outside of uh, film and television as well. He worked several times with Yes frontman John Anderson on a project called John Evangelist, as well as with organizations ranging from FIFA to NASA. His most recent album, Juno to Jupiter, was released last year. In the composing world, he is an absolute figure and icon. So, of course, we send our best out to the loved ones and the people who remember them and respect their work. And, of course, we encourage you guys to go check out their work as well. Noah, do you have any words in regards to the passing of either Ray Liotta or Evangelist? Just Ray Liotta, I feel, was, like you say, as prolific as he was, even somebody who um, wasn't always aware of who I was watching. I think that he was, um, <laughs> it, like certain comedies, I remember Liotta popping up, like uh, I'm thinking about the mall cop comedy with Seth Rogen, but that, not that that's to any credit of the, the, the catalog of work that he had done, um, Goodfellas and then Marriage Story popping up here too. Uh, that is just important, I think, for us involved in the entertainment space to uh, pay homage and really uh, credit those who have passed on and uh, continue to celebrate their work, as you say. I particularly remember him. And did you see uh, Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move with uh, Don Cheadle? No. It just came out last year. It's great. No one saw it. In recent years, he was starting to take more notice of his image and just kind of say, you know, what, screw it. I'm going to do these really cool roles. And, you know, you got to respect him for that. And obviously, Vangelis, I'm a massive I don't love the first Blade Runner, but his score is one of the things that I constantly go back to. He was an absolute pioneer when it came to electronic orchestration and bringing ambient scores into music and lost a huge loss in the electronic space. So obviously rest in peace and uh, go check out their work. Obviously you can find it all online if you can. 
Uh, let's move on to some brighter news in the world of entertainment news today. And first and foremost, as we're recording this, uh, it is the tail end of Star Wars Celebration 19, I want to say. I will correct myself. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Star Wars Celebration is basically the Comic-Con for Star Wars nerds. A lot of big things happen there, you know, uh, conventions and signings and art pieces, all the big convention things. And of course, a lot of news dropped from there. It is basically the mecca for Star Wars news. I have a list in front of me of most of the giant announcements. I did not get to them all because I was very busy, but this is pretty much all of the things that made waves that you can all experience with us. Uh, we got a lot of trailers. Uh, we got the first trailer for Andor starring Diego Luna and Gwyneth B. Riley reprising their roles from both Rogue One and the Star Wars prequels. That is set for release in August. It'll be the next series after Obi-Wan. We got the first trailer for The Bad Batch Season 2. That release date was chopped off at the legs for a while, and now we're apparently getting it this fall. It's the second season of the... Clone Wars spinoff uh, that I think is really good, but we'll get into it. We got the first trailer for Jedi Survivor, the sequel to the video game Jedi Fallen Order. That is set for release sometime in 2023. Uh, set for 2023, we have The Mandalorian Season 3, Ahsoka, Young Jedi Tales, which is going to be a young, a, basically for kindergartners age series. We don't know if it's going to be animated or live action just yet. Uh, the second season of Star Wars Visions, as well as Skeleton Crew, which is going to be the next post-Return of the Jedi series from John Watts, who, of course, gave us the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies. All of those are set for release in 2023. We don't have exact release dates as of yet. Uh, the Mandalorian Season 3 and Ahsoka both showed footage. Those are not online as of yet. Just watch by the time this goes up, that footage will be up, and we will look like total dunces. Uh, Mandalorian Season 3 specifically, we got confirmation of directors returning, John Favreau, Bryce Dallas Howard, Rick Famuyiwa, and Carl Weathers, who will be returning to the cast as well. All of them are going to be coming to direct. Famuyiwa has also been promoted to executive producer as well. Good for him. Uh, Tales of the Jedi, which is the next animated series. Uh, Dave Filoni is, of course, going to be returning to that. That's coming out this fall, actually. It's going to tell a lot of stories on prequel era characters. We got confirmation on young Count Dooku, young Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, the story of how Ahsoka Tano came to be in the Jedi Temples. And last but not least, this was not specifically at Celebration, but it was reiterated at Celebration. Uh, Taika Waititi's untitled Star Wars movie is going to be the next theatrical release project. That's going to be in 2023. We just still don't know what it's going to be. Uh, and both Rogue Squadron, which I don't think Patty Jenkins is any longer attached to, and Ryan Johnson's Unknown Trilogy are still on the back burner, but they will happen at some point. So Noah, going through all of that, and that's not even all of it. There were you know some smaller things with books and comics and a couple other video games in the works, but that's all of like the major film and TV stuff. What if this stands out to you that you've heard from this weekend? You know, I'm reading The Mandalorian season three and I'm absolutely stoked for it. I think that has been a series that has kept uh, me and my family because we, we do watch uh, the, these episodes together, um, kept us all very entertained. They're always coming around our, around winter time. And so uh, to me, that's just it's a very warming series. And so to see that they're returning even after like we got that kind of finale moment at the end of season two, it kind of it raises the question of what season three will explore now that we've kind of broken this um this this partnership between or i guess kind of <laughs> am i about to spoil it scrapping that um near spoiler we got an introduction to ahsoka tano so that series with rosario dawson i thought that she blew that uh performance that kind of energy being another jedi out the park so for her to have her own series i'm i'm absolutely behind that and i haven't heard anything about this but when you mentioned skeleton crew that really piqued my interest because that that does seem like something I would be um, more so excited of than these others because because it kind of piqued my interest how you described it. Um, we saw at least on our feeds that Taika Waititi is going to be directing a Star Wars movie, and I gotta say, like I, I'm so happy that 
right now, I am Taika Waititi is is one of many probably, but his directing work, you kind of just, you can picture it and you can feel it across all of his different projects. And I think that he's somebody that I'm just, I'm happy that he's synonymous with, at least for me, just an entertaining film. Like I know that whatever he's able to churn out, I'm going to be thoroughly entertained by. Um, who knows what kind of droid he's going to lend his own voice to because the man is an excellent actor. Uh, but those are those are the short comments, right? Brandon, of the list you ran down, what piques your interest? Well, interestingly, there's two series that we got nothing on, which was uh, The Acolytes, which is the whole before Phantom Menace supposedly focused on like the Sith and the High Republic. We didn't get anything focused on that. We also have not heard anything on the Lando series. We don't know if Donald Glover is coming back for that, if Justin Simeon is still attached. But we haven't heard anything on those, which I thought was odd. Also worth mentioning, uh, Skeleton Crew did announce a cast member. Jude Law is going to be leading that series, which I think is great. Uh, it's going to be more of like an Amblin-focused series on a bunch of kids who get lost in the galaxy and then have to do the thing to get back home. I think that could be really great. Like, that feels Star Wars, and John Watts is, you know, if you've seen uh, Cop Car, obviously with Spider-Man movies, like, he is capable of taking kid actors and really wrangling them in something mature and special. So, again, I know a lot of people don't quite love what he did with Spider-Man, but, like, I'm totally on board with him. I think he can bring something interesting to that. I like to hear that Ryan Johnson's film is still on the back burner. Obviously, the Ahsoka news is great. We also got the we also got the confirmation that Natasha Luperdizo is going to be playing Sabine in that. So all of the Rebels connections are there, and I cannot freaking wait. I don't know about you. The biggest thing that got me, the Andor teaser. I thought that was a great teaser. I think it looks like a really complicated, born legacy-esque spy thriller in the midst of that, uh, you know, post-Order 66 landscape. I love getting to see Mom Mothma back in the fray. Diogo Luna always looks good, but like here, I love that he's just starting to get that like grizzled attitude that we see in Rogue One and where we can see Cassian's character develop. We are supposed to actually be getting a second season of that. It's supposed to be a two-part show, so to speak. Uh, but that really blew my mind. I thought it was a great teaser. I kind of want to speak more on that too, on what we can expect from a series on Andor, because he was a character who was introduced in his final moments in Rogue One. Whoever hasn't seen that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about if you're tuned into this, but it it's it kind of intrigues me because Cassian isn't somebody who will show up in any of our titles that are going to be like hitting the major uh, screens, at least to expect, because in my head, the timeline of like what we can see on the major screen is going to be post all the Star Wars content that we've already got. I'm expecting Taika Waititi's not to throw back to um, another era of Star Wars. I'm expecting it to pick up kind of at the at the close or years beyond the close of um what we got out of Rise of Skywalker. That being said, still very excited about the series. Um, I'm not sure what other familiar characters we can expect out of there, but uh, like you say, it does have that spy kind of um, underlying tone to it that I think will excite people. What did you think, because we talked about this before the pre-production meeting, what did you think of the uh, Jedi Survivor trailer? Ooh, as, as a gamer, I have poured many hours into row into a uh, fallen order still haven't passed it but that game just throws back to all of my uh, my happiest and like intense times playing star wars the force unleashed like i think in sometimes in the in the viewing media that we get like in movies and tv shows that is star wars sometimes it feels like it's always just the family adventure and it doesn't really hit those super mature themes um We'll discuss this with Obi-Wan's content later, but Fallen Order to me has always kept that intense bar. Like you are following sort of a younger Jedi there, 
it's an intense game. And I think that um, with everybody talking now about what the sequel is going to do, I'm probably going to get back in my mood of let me finish that game so that I can pre-order the next. Uh, it's exciting. I, I love video games and movies. Like I love this franchise still expanding and having its its dip in all these different worlds. We'll, we'll see that for many franchises to come, but uh, Star Wars is definitely an example. What I find interesting is that one that's supposed to take place five years in the future, uh, so it's going to be time to, I love that crew of characters and I hope we see more with them. Someone made the observation of if the first game is five years after Revenge of the Sith, this will be 10 years after. What else is 10 years after? Obi-Wan. Oh, there could be a crossover there and that would be <laughs> awesome. Uh, like I would love to see Cal and Obi-Wan interact, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, and I know the trailer isn't like final gameplay footage or anything, but it seems neat. Noticeably, and we will move on after this, I just want to point out two things. Uh, about this, we didn't hear on the video game side, at least to my knowledge, anything about Eclipse which I know that that whole studio has been in a lot of controversy lately about some of the founders' comments on LGBTQ people and things like that. So that's interesting. They didn't bring that up, at least to my knowledge. Please correct me if that was brought up. I just don't know. Uh, but also that we got a footnote as we're recording this is happening the Vision Season 2 panel, which they did announce is going to be coming next year. I'm so happy we're getting more Visions. I think that was, you know, you and I, I think both agree is one of the most interesting things that Star Wars has done in a while. And like to get more of that and to get more of a worldwide perspective on this franchise, I think is a great thing. And with that, I think we're just going to move on to our next main topic for today. We had a lot of trailers in the last two weeks. Uh, it seems it's just everything was dropping on of Memorial Day. So we're just going to run them down and do something new and try and see which ones stick out. Uh, going through th via release date, via release date, I should say, uh, we got a new full trailer for Elvis, of course, starring Austin Butler and Tom Hanks. That is supposed to come out in uh, on June 24th. We also got a first trailer for the Man vs. B series, which is Rowan Atkinson's next project, also coming out the same day. Oh, God, the competition, even though one is a series and one is a movie, but we'll get into it. Uh, we got another full trailer for Thor Ragnarok. They are really ramping up the marketing for this with our first look at both Russell Crowe's Zeus, but most importantly, Christian Bale as Gore the God Butcher. We'll get into that. Uh, 3,000 Years of Longing. This is George Miller, who, of course, did the Mad Max movies. He, this is his next project with Tilda Swinton and Indris Elba. It's based on a short story set to come out uh, late August. I think it looks great, but we'll get into it. Uh, Devotion, this is J.D. Dillard's next project with Glenn Powell. Oh, look, another Top Gun connection. And uh, Jonathan Majors from Loki. That'll be coming out this October. And finally, maybe the biggest one of the lot, the first teaser trailer for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. We got the confirmation this will be split into two movies, set for July 14th, 2023. What did you think of Tom Cruise jumping off the motorcycle and, you know, all the other stuff, too? Okay, we are, we're going back, baby. This is the seventh Mission Impossible film. Where are no, we? No longer Mission Impossible 7. No longer Mission Impossible 7. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. I see the title pop up. I see a wormhole right behind the title that looks all too familiar because we've all seen Dune. It looks like the freaking worm. And then the real horror sets in. We get part one illuminated on the bottom of the screen and my heart kind of just drops what are you doing what do you mean part one like we're seven parts in and this is part like a of the next entry i don't i'm not behind it i don't like it the trailer was awesome i like seeing returns of um Re rebecca ferguson um obviously the names are escaping me right now but there's so there's so much connectivity here from fallout and uh, I just can't wait to see the uh, continued relationships there. But that being said, the part one irks me. Um, speaking, you know, before we start hopping around different titles, Brandon, I kind of want to get takeaways as we go. So let's talk Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, part one. 
I mean, it's another Chris McQuarrie, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible movie. Of course, I have to be excited for it. And like Ving Rhames is coming back. Side note, we don't give Ving Rhames enough credit in these movies. Like he's almost always reliable and great. But like the fact that we've gotten an older black actor in this franchise who is always getting his due and Tom Cruise always wants to bring back. I think it's just so great. But like on top of that, Simon Pegg's coming back. Rebecca Ferguson is coming back. Uh, Vanessa Kirby, who is I saw her in the trailer. I'm like, yes. Uh, Yes. And then. Henry Cerny, who hasn't been in the franchise since the first one, like he's coming back for this, which is really fascinating. Uh, I love like some of the weird supporting players they've gotten there. Obviously, Haley Atwell, who we've heard is going to be a really major player going into both of the Dead Reckoning movies and who may or may not be in a relationship with Tom Cruise. That is a whole other thing. Uh, but like, I love how it looks. Obviously, the scale is there. Rebecca Ferguson with the sword is all I needed. And that's basically all I have to say. Absolutely. And you know what? That, and that's what I was thinking of. It was Vanessa Kirby because I, her face, I've just, I've just, um, I could recall, but I could not get the name down. She was exciting. And then uh, we saw her in Hobbs and Shaw, like she nails action. And so I hope she gets some good moments to shine. And then Haley Atwell. Oh my gosh. We, you're telling me we got Peggy Carter in this Mission Impossible universe. And then of course it cuts to Tom Cruise and he's running through the streets of some a European country. And I go, and then there's Tom Cruise doing his thing. So <laughs> we'll see what he jumps off this time. Please don't injure yourself, Tom Cruise. I need more of you taking death defying leaps. In. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that trailer, it's pretty badass. If anybody hasn't checked it out yet, I highly uh, encourage it. Why don't we move and on? Oh, oh I, was, I was gonna say, and just a genius move to release this on the tail end of like all the acclaimed Top Gun Maverick is getting. Absolutely. Uh, let, let's go on ahead to the next one that actually, uh, I mean, the three for me here that I'm gonna kind of throw flowers at are gonna be uh, the Elvis trailer. I think that this new longer trailer really uh, allowed me as a viewer to lean more into the story that uh, is gonna be following Austin Butler's portrayal of the worldwide phenomenon um and the music i think uh, there was even i think doja cat is uh has a song that pops yeah up. i don't she I, is i didn't do a second or third listen but off of what i heard i heard doja cat and i thought let me look into this because something's happening now 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 my ears are going up and then three thousand years of longing is the other one i want to highlight this is a long title <laughs> that i thought was going to be something um that i wouldn't get or that i wouldn't understand just because nothing was really throwing itself at me until I watched the trailer. And you're telling me it's about a genie and the genie's at your Selva? What? How could you do this and not let me know? Uh, <laughs> so th those two, I, I say, are the additional titles that I'm just like, thank you for these trailers. Now I have a reason to be excited about on this calendar. Let me mark it. Uh, same question to you. You know, you're highlighting a couple of these. Which ones are they? Did you see Gore Verbinski's A Cure for Wellness? I started it, Brandon. It was hard to watch. I was going to say, this feels like, it's very different movies, but it feels like the same idea of just like, let's give a weird out there director like proper studio finance backing, just let him go weird with it. But also like a really interesting story behind it. Like I like the idea of having a genie story where the idea of misconstrued wishes and misconstrued desires is really being explored and just being like, oh, ha ha, you got another, which I feel like genies get explored so much in that vein. But again, just another George Mueller project is just an automatic yes for me. I will say the new Elvis trailer, yeah, it's better than the first one. I like this a lot. I like the Suspicious Mind rendition. I like that it's more of Austin Butler versus Tom Hanks. That was my problem with the first one was that, oh, it's Elvis. And here's not Elvis. Whereas here, like, it's Austin Butler is Elvis, who from the initial cans responses have, has been apparently killing it in this role, which I can't always see. I will admit the soundtrack stuff irks me to a weird degree. Like, I like that it's creative. I like that it's Baz Luhrmann doing what he does. But just like, I mean... 
it feels a bit a bit gimmicky even for his sake but like i'm willing to see it in progress in the movie that's all hey you know what i've seen is everybody uh loving that tr- that scene that we got from thor where <laughs> his clothes are <laughs> <The butt>. <laughs> too hard <laughs> should, should we help him uh, not just yet grape as as all the women who are around Zeus just <laughs> melt around him. Um, you know, there's something here. And, you know, last point I think I need to make about these trailers, at least for the Thor's one, is yes, the introduction of Gore the God Butcher, Christian Bale. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm so happy we got the 310 to Yuma reunion with Russell yes. and Christian Bale back. Um, he looks terrifying. He sounds it. Are we being introduced to this Greek pantheon that involves Zeus? And I can't recall if any other name drops were made uh, for this, for, you know, we're not exploring the Norse gods no longer. Asgard has been destroyed. Now we are in what I'm assuming is another realm where Zeus operates. But how are they going to introduce this new pantheon of gods into the MCU? Because are we kind of just running with the fact that, oh, you know, the Greek gods exist, um, the Norse gods, the Egyptian gods, and does their power scale in terms of like when they're up against somebody like Captain Marvel, who we know is going to show up, not in this movie, but in the cosmic scale of things, where do they fit? And so I, I kind of want to know how they play with that reality or how they play with that narrative. Um, and I want Zeus to be a complete maniac. Like I, I would love to see him just really make an example out of whoever he needs to in this movie to showcase his power. I kind of want a scene that just shows off some of the Greek gods that are, that we know are going to show up. Another big character in the comics is Hercules. So we'll see if he pops up. That's true. This could be a backdoor entry into Hercules. I do unfortunately think Zeus is getting it. Like, I think he's going to be the joke character. Just like, Hey Russell, you want to come in and die for a scene? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like you bring in Gore, the God butcher. If he doesn't butcher a god in the first 10 minutes of his entry, you're not doing it right, right? And that's why he's so terrifying in the Jason Aaron one, which you should all be reading, and I'm going to be a broken record until the movie comes out. But, like, the reason he's so terrifying that is because of, like, his death toll and and also just his general consensus of why he's doing it. But I love what Christian Bale looks like in this. I love how they didn't CG him up. I love how it's just makeup. It's just him in the hood. But he's, again, he's so intimidating and cocky within himself that I uh, I love just seeing the idea of him and I cannot wait to see how they execute him. We're just going to hop right into our quick hits. That was all the major topics we have for today. Uh, but for our smaller topics, this is our quick hits portion where we each run down a topic of the show that maybe isn't big enough for a major discussion, but we want to get it across to you guys anyways. Noah, I'm going to let you go first because you have something the people should definitely know about. Absolutely. And I will be beginning as soon as I pull up my little clock and I'll start now. Okay, friends, uh, this is going to be a short mini discussion around the series Love, Death and Robots. That is a animated anthology series that is on Netflix. Three seasons available now for you to watch. The series creator is Tim Miller, who you may um, find the name familiar from. Uh, just his credits include executive producing on both Sonic the Hedgehog movies, as well as directing the Deadpool movie. Uh, that's right. We have Tim Miller, director of Deadpool, uh, creating this animated series. So what's it all about? Um, they, the series titled Love, Death, and Robots invites uh, different animation studios from different countries to really take those three words or those three terms, intertwine them, use a few, drop others, and just tell a good story. And the majority of these episodes are 20 minutes or less. I think I saw the longest being 21 minutes. But these, these short, bite-sized episodes really showcase imaginative storytelling uh, sometimes they lean into the eerie, the supernatural, the spiritual, but these new animation styles in every episode in 
every season really inspire you as a creator. And I think it's it's magical to have something that is intended for mature audiences and have it all be rooted in animation. You will watch it and be like in awe at some of their creativity. And um, it's a perfect thing to do if you just want to burn a lunch break over time, but absolutely worth it. Well played, well played. And also worth noting, this is David Fincher's first animation debut, which I think is really fascinating. Uh, but I love that we get three volumes of this. Like the series, I haven't watched it yet, but it's so weirdly comprised and weirdly developed that like we're getting three volumes of this on Netflix that just had its whole animation department basically slashed that I, I think it's really cool. And one other note was like, you will see familiar faces kind of pop up in here, whether they did like motion capture or they did voice acting. Uh, I like that they're, even though this is uh, a strictly Netflix and strictly animation, you still have like other um, like uh, physical actors. I'm not, I don't want to just like traditional actors, right. Um, popping up. And like, I think that that was really cool for the series to take on. I will move on to mine in three, two. So for those of you who have been paying attention to the Fast and Furious fandom, Fast 10, otherwise known as Fast X, has been going through a bit of an identity crisis in the last couple months. No big deal. Uh, over the past few weeks, uh, there's been a lot of shape from the director's position. Justin Lin was, was uh, set to return on the director's chair. He left because Vin Diesel was apparently being a jerk again. He was forgetting lines and, you know, doing his Vin Diesel thing. But, you know, I guess he's on the project. Lin has agreed to stay on executive producer. But again, there's a whole thing going on with the universe. Neither here nor there. They did bring on Louis Leterrier to come on and direct. Uh, he is responsible for things like The Incredible Hulk, Now You See Me, uh, Brothers Grimsby, a couple like uh, television projects. But we also got some pretty major casting news in the last week. Uh, Jason Momoa has been attached as one of the villains. Brie Larson, Captain Marvel herself, will be in the movie. Uh, the Suicide Squad's Daniela Melchior and Reacher's Alan Richland doing the cast. But none of that matters because we have Oscar winner Rita Moreno confirmed as Dominic Toretto's grandmother. And if she doesn't participate in a car chase, I will be thoroughly mad. Fast 10 is set back on track for filming. It is set for release on May 19, 2023. I really hope this turns out good and time. And time, you mentioned Oscar winner. You meant EGOT winner. My disrespect. I apologize. What other big name is in Hollywood am I waiting to get attached to the franchise? Probably Zendaya. There are so many names that could still join this project that'll just make me go, okay, it's snowballing now. Like it's snowballing now, but it's just going to get bigger. So as we get closer to that, let's figure out what Fast X is going to be about. Who knows if it's going to be the fast movie that brings me back to theaters. I mean, I joke, but like Anthony Hopkins in Transformers 5, he would do this. Uh, let's move into our new releases for the week. We've got four in movie releases for this week. Uh, two that we're just going to be doing individually, two we're going to be doing as a group. And we're going to start out for one of our dual reviews at the restaurants for today. We're going to be starting with Bob's Burgers, the movie. This is the theatrical adaptation of the mega popular Fox animated series uh, running on its, I believe, 12th season as of right now. Uh, it's been running for a long time and is you know, genuinely beloved. I have seen some of it. I have not seen all of it, but I did binge the first, first season and a half in honor of this, and I am really charmed by it. Needless to say, let's get into the movie. We see most of the voice cast and the creative team brought back from the, from the uh, television series. Lauren Bouchard and Bernard uh, Derriman, who both are one of the who are both some of the supervising producers on the series, along with both most of the main voice cast, H. John Benjamin, Eugene Merman, Dan Mintz, uh, John Roberts, and Larry Murphy, uh, alongside Kristen Schaal and Zach Galifianakis, alongside Kristen Schaal and Kevin Klein. How does the movie go? Uh, well, it's basically the age-old story. You know, summer is coming. Uh, the Belcher family, of course, headed by uh, Dad Bob and Mom Linda, they are looking to extend their loan payments. 
the, the bank is being jerks to them. And then all of a sudden, while everything else is going on, a sinkhole opens right in front of the restaurant, cutting off all the customers in, uh, from the front of the restaurant. Uh, Luis, who is the youngest belcher voiced by Kristen Schaal, she goes into the sinkhole to try and prove her bravery to her friends. And she finds a dead body in there uh, that people start to think is Bob. It's the whole plot point doesn't really happen. Needless to say, the kids... Uh, go off and try to solve who actually murdered this guy. It's the body of a dead carny. They go to a bunch of like their local contacts. We see a lot of familiar faces from the TV show. Meanwhile, Bob and Linda, along with their friend Teddy, try to basically take Bob's Burgers mobile to the local pier with mixed results. And the whole movie just turns into this big whodunit thing with, you know, classism metaphors and things thrown in there and a lot of just, you know, great burger uh, and animation there to look. Uh, Noah, over to you. How big of a fan are you of the original TV series? And what did you think of this, what is essentially the Simpsons movie treatment for this show? I was not a fan of Bob's Burgers. I think that I leaned more toward like uh, shows for mature, like adult audiences being like, oh, like I always watch Family Guy. So not to, not to sing praise for Family Guy, but all that's to say that I just was already invested in other, I think, animated adult outlets that I felt like Bob's Burgers was just not one that I needed. How ignorant, like, was that a stance before seeing this movie? I think in prep for this movie, I told myself, you know what, I'll go back to the show. I'll kind of give it a second wave because uh, my circles of friends, they are big fans of this show. Like I thought, Noah, you know, don't die on your family guy hill, go check out this show. And going into the movie, I wasn't prepared for as many musical numbers as there was going to be, uh, but I'm the musical guy on the pod. Like I wasn't, you know, my ears weren't turned off to those songs. I would say there's one in the middle that doesn't really work, but uh, the others I felt were um, were heartful. And um, I actually, when you talk about like social um commentary when it comes to the Carnegies, right? Like the people who are from the lesser uh, developed part of town who kind of have to establish community for themselves. I felt like that was communicated very well. And I liked what they did with that, uh, with that song number. It feels like Louise, the the youngest daughter is always the one to kind of lead this uh, crime side of the story. That's new for me. I mean, knowing Bob's Burgers, two seasons of it, that's new for me to be like this family, the Belchers are ready for a crime, you know, drama, except it's not the Belchers. It's actually just going to be the kids because the parents are too busy trying to make like a mobile Bob's Burgers cart stand, like survive at the county fair or at the city fair. Plenty going on. Is it Bob's Burgers? Is it something else? You know, will fans feel rewarded for all that? You know, who, who's to say, at least not us, because we kind of just tiptoed into the show. It was an interesting story to follow for this family. Um, before I kind of dive into specifics, Brandon, watching this, were you entertained? Were you excited? Were you folded over? I should say, I got to see this at the press screening, and there were a lot of people cosplaying as the Belchers and just like laughing. And, you know, it, it was, it kind of reminded me of when I went to go see uh, Jackass 4, when it was that kind of thing of, I'm not necessarily in that audience, but I was surrounded by people who were. So it was kind of soaking up that fandom, which I'm never opposed to as part of an audience member. That being said, like as someone who had a little bit of experience with the series, I had fun with this. This is genuinely lovely, entertaining movie there. And I think it's great for Memorial Day. It's great for families. That's the other thing too, is that even though it's Bob's Burgers, I don't know how, you know, adult it gets later on, but like 
for me, for the most part, this is pretty family friendly. I would say like, there's not a ton of cursing. A lot of the, a lot of the language and humor is pretty straightforward and it, it feels the most British humor that an American animated movie has gotten in years, which I found very interesting. Uh, and I love that the movie just on its own exists. Like the fact that we are getting a 2d animated movie with a frankly non-celebrity A-list voice cast in there from a, what is essentially a Disney movie. I think that's amazing. And the fact they kept this on their docket, let alone it's based on a source material should be commendable. That being said, yeah, it's a bit hollow in story. I did list a lot of nuance because I'm not that huge fan. And I wish like you, I wish they had gone into like just doing a full blown musical because it felt like, oh, this is really interesting. You're putting a lot of talent and grace into your musical numbers, but they're not really frequent enough to, for me to care. And I will admit it does feel like a stretched out episode, but at the same time, like it's a really entertaining time. Like you say, it freezes by. The story is pretty easy to follow. And I had a good time with it. Okay, so I'm going to read my line that I wrote here. Guess what, Patty fans? There's a freaking sizzling hot movie for the equally sizzling hot TV show. Where was that sentence going? Couldn't tell you. But It's for the box art. But uh, for, for capturing what the show at least uh, had in store for like longtime fans, there it was said that so if you are a longtime fan of the show there is like the narrative piece of uh, Luis's hat that you never really understand why she wears it well that's finally revealed in this movie so i guarantee you that is like an emotional chord even even for me as a new fan that is an emotional chord that i'm sure will hit um the longtime fans like a like a wave of tears um i just think that it's it's interesting that they're still able to pull off that trick 12 seasons in um, how much of that exists like outside of the hat thing and uh, what other things will you notice as a longtime viewer I can't really speak to but I will say that you'll still laugh like you'll still feel like you're a part of this goofy family um, the best friend uh, Teddy shows up the adults are really doing what the kids will be doing which is like the B plot of just stomping around the city and just causing a mess yeah with the belchers that mom and dad are doing they are trying to figure out with this large sinkhole right in front of their business they can't sell a burger unless somebody enters the like sketchy alleyway in the back so instead their best friend assembles this cart their whole gimmick is trying to sell burgers without a license at this fair that's neighboring down the street and it's actually it's actually really funny um linda puts on this burger costume that she has a bikini strapped on over it because she wants to be sexy um and then the kids are the ones who are piecing together evidence, trying to put together this, like you say, who done it murder mystery that I think doesn't entirely like draw me in, but it doesn't have to, because I'm really just here to see how all these characters are going to kind of make their situation, make the best out of their situations. And they ultimately do. And like, it works enough. Like you mentioned, like, even we both mentioned the idea of like, is it the most like when you get to the reveal that it gets to, oh God, like I'm so invested. No, not particularly. Like it, you either see it coming or it happens and you go, oh yeah, that would make sense. Like there's nothing groundbreaking about it, but you're right. It doesn't have to be because again, it's the Bob's Burgers movie. And the only thing it really has to do is ground you in as a fan, give you some great humor, give you some lighthearted moments with the family. But I will mention like you bring up the thing with the hat which, you know, I, you missed the hat trick pun, which is the whole thing. But beyond that, like, I like the idea of there's a scene towards the end that I will say really dragged me in emotionally. That's one of the few times that I really felt, oh, like the curtain is dropping beyond the sitcom-esque of it all. And it's actually becoming a really emotional movie. I like the dynamic between Bob and Linda, how, again, the, the humor angle of it is brought down. It's the idea of 
no, like you're a super optimist. Well, I'm just being a realist. And I think that dynamic is played a bit more easily. Again, that's me coming from a, a from a perspective of I only know so much about the show, but it was stuff that I was interested in and was never really quote unquote bored by. This is back to my animation question, which I think, I can't remember if I, I think I we talked about this like in one of our directorial debuts about the Iron Giant, where I was like directing an animated movie. Like where does the director's touch come in? It's Lauren Bouchard and Bernard Derriman. And then I don't have the cast list of the actors in front of me, but absolutely why don't we uh, commemorate those actors? Specifically, Kristen Schaal is worth mentioning because again, I think Luis, she really instigates a lot of the plot of the movie. And I think she has to drive a lot of the, the more dialogue-driven portions of it to it. But obviously, um, oh God, uh, John Roberts, who voices Linda, does a great job. Uh, Eugene Merman comes into play. Kevin Klein, who has apparently been voicing on a TV show for a decade, which feels just weird to say that he's been a TV star for that long. But like, he does a great job with, you know, Calvin and those characters. And I'm right behind you on that. Very solid seven out of 10. I know that doesn't sound very kind, but it's about right in the middle of where I feel of just like, it's not particularly great. Like, I don't want to bring up comparisons to the Simpsons movie, but like that movie took the concept and basically just turned it up to 1200 and did whatever it wanted to do with it. This takes the idea of let's do a sitcom movie and just kind of does it, but it does it very well. It does it with really great animation, which we didn't ever bring up. The animation is really crisp and lovely to watch. And the, the actual dance sequences in the musical number are freaking hilarious. And I love them. But like, again, the actual characters are beloved and they're beloved for a reason. The story is easy to follow. I think it's great for families, especially for Memorial Day weekend, even though this will likely go up way past Memorial Day weekend. But I had a very good time when it eventually comes out on VOD. You should absolutely check it out. For me, this is going to be an eight out of 10. I think that this is a lovely um, transition for the series to explore like the longer format. Uh, working in a couple musical numbers, I think only elevates it at times, uh, even when they're a little, <laughs> when they're a little less than um like the best thing you see, it's still just so fun to watch these creators try and, you know, weave their story, even as it has to match like this musical beat. So um, thank you to the Bob's Burgers crew. And yeah, this was a solid um, eight out of 10 for me. I, I will be rewatching it on whatever kind of platform it's available on in the future. Oh, for sure. And just the idea that they were able to take time away from the TV series to make this and make it as good as it is. And apparently the series has not suffered from what I've heard. Like that should absolutely be commended. And I'm really proud of them. Uh, Bob's Burgers, the movie or the Bob's Burgers movie is in theaters right now. I believe it will be on Hulu by the end of summer. So check it out either or if you are so interested. We are going to move on to our next major release of the week from the delightful, you know, pure summertime shenanigans of Bob's Burgers into some really dark stuff. Uh, and I'm going to leave it to my co-host because I didn't get around to seeing it this week. And I probably should have because the discourse has been really fascinating to me. Noah, tell us about the most terrifying thing in the world. Man, you are terrifying. You are a nightmare to work with. <laughs> that's that's going to be I tough. mean, there's no, no lie there. <laughs> um, now, we are talking uh, Alex Garland, the director of Ex Machina. Um, he returned as well as, sorry, Annihilation. Um, he returns to screens with his next work being Men. This movie stars, uh, the two primary stars in this film are going to be Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. Um, Jesse Buckley is the, uh, the hero in the film. Uh, they start in this horror film where they, Buckley is really able to surrender this range of emotion between like rage and grief and like, um, 
just like apathy, I think that you would experience when you're grieving a partner. Uh, she loses her partner at the start of the film and her partner was abusive toward her emotionally and physically. So she secludes herself away hours from home in the green countryside of this English, uh, this England house. It's at this house that these men begin to show up. And it's something that's going to be easier in viewing because of how they involve Kinnear. So if anyone hasn't seen the trailer yet, Jesse Buckley is the protagonist in this film. And there are, in this small community, I'm not gonna call it a village, like it is like a small town, I would say. Um, there's a pub and she's there and she is looking around and you see the other characters that are involved in this community, some of which have the same face, some of which are being portrayed by Rory Kinnear. There are a lot of men in this um, surrounding area that have that same face. And so you're thinking to yourself as you're watching this, like, is there a fantastical element here? You know, is there a fantasy at play? Because why is the same person popping up time and time again, just like with small adjustments made to them? And then you think it's kind of, you know, actually uh, satirical or it's trying to speak to some um, social disparities between gender. So that's why we see all these men in one form while Buckley, the character, um, sorry, Harper is her character, while she maybe is ignorant to this site. Maybe we have this like layer of experience where we can see all of them being the same, but in the film, Harper can only see them as different people entirely. Is that ever answered? I think so. I think throughout the movie, you do get the gist that um, Harper actually can't tell the difference between these men, only we are supposed to. Um, that being said, let me just tell you, I was ready for a movie about um, Jesse Buckley has been another horror I would call. Um, I'm thinking of ending things a horror, you know, not in the in the gory sense that some people may expect, but definitely in those layers of fear and dread and terror that you really need to um, advance a movie like that. While I wasn't a major fan of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, I am a big Jesse Buckley fan. So that's what kind of excited me for this men film. Um, so I was ready for Buckley to be scrambling around this haunted house in England while being constantly stalked by these alternating characters, all played by Kinnear. You know, Kinnear is, is, at least from what I've seen, Kinnear is an excellent actor. And this tied in with some wild twists and maybe some head shaking, mouth covering moments was all I felt was coming based off the trailers. Oh boy, <laughs> could I not be more wrong? I think this, the film's trailer and the title, Men, gave me the inclination it would talk about social disparities, like I say, rooted in gender or toxic masculinity ruling this community that Harper is in. Instead, you this is what you kind of get. You get a naked stalker that persists throughout the film, even as the film kind of transforms what the naked stalker is actually supposed to be. All you really see is a naked stalker and then the later iterations of it. A touchy priest and the kind of nice guy she's renting the house from. These three characters, I think, were the most prominent of the men that were included in the film. And they did not give enough in, in, in their situations involved with Harper for me to believe that the situation that was going on was anything less than like, what's the word? Like, it, it feels like an insane nightmare because there's no, there's no through line of the first visual of these repeated figures from Harper that then like translates into something else 
by the end of the film. We have a grieving woman whose uh, whose partner has leapt from their building, and he, I'm sorry, I'm looking for his name right now. He, his name is James, and he's portrayed by Papa Esidu. I'm kind of struggling to get through this because this was a movie that towards the end of it, it does lean into like the full the full grotesque of like visuals and showing you something over and over again, I think trying to spark a reaction out of you where I think that what's being repeatedly done over and over again is this creature duplicating itself. This is like an entrancing moment of the film where you are some completely surrendering to the fantasy that's being portrayed in front of you. I don't know where it was supposed to go. And so, you know, maybe there are viewers out there who got a completely different reaction than me. And I want to have a conversation about it uh, because walking away from this, uh, I really, it did not leave a good, a good garland um, feel for me. And I'm a big fan of Ex Machina. I thought that that was amazing uh, work of filmmaking and storytelling, but as a follow-up piece, this is a little sour, you know, to wrap it up, you know, there's not going to be plenty of notes for me on this film, but to wrap it up, it was one of the movies I felt like as the end was approaching, I was, I was already phone in hand, keys out of pocket, like popcorn wrapped up. <laughs> and I know credit, the feeling. credits roll. I nod my head to the theater, you know, thank you for this experience. I'm out. Like I'm ready to continue with my day. Cause unfortunately there's not a lot for me to chew on here. And, um, this movie's a nightmare. No argument. Uh, this was my, I think this, sorry, this is my final note. Ken Year's performance in each role is distinct and getting multiple of him in a room as these other characters um, was something I wanted to see more of. You know, if that's your whole gimmick for this film, let's use it to the, to the, ex, to the extreme. Um, Buckley gets put through the ringer as the final sequence of the movie goes full guts on the floor, wild chaos. And I can't really tell you the purpose or whether a purpose was served with her character. Um, with a movie titled as Men, written by a man, I kind of wanted to see a perspective that made sense for kind of um, recognizing the woman and her experience as she has these this surrounding of men affirming men and nobody really listening to her. You know, she does have one um, confidant throughout the film. You're waiting for their relationship to continue, but unfortunately, like, they're meeting up, but it, the meetup happens at the end of the movie. So there was only one other woman I think that she had a conversation with. And other than that, it was Kinnear's different iterations of these men, some of which were kind of straight up fantasy. The other ones were <sighs> touchy priests. I, <laughs> I wish I could go more into detail, but I'm afraid this is a movie that if you're intrigued enough by this kind of roller coaster review, check it out. But if not, you might just want to read those reactions yourself and check out maybe a spoiler filled um, review from other creators too. Uh, for myself, for Alex Garland's next piece, Men, this is a four out of 10. Ooh, and wow. I think I need to have more conversations about this film to really understand its intention. First of all, how many times have you seen Ex Machina and Annihilation? Annihilation took me maybe two passes for me to go back and be like, okay, you know what? I, I did like the, and I'm a, I'm a, I read the book. So right. um, I did want to go back and I did want to see how they... Um, move through this alien space or like Garland's work there, I think it's so intriguing. You're telling multiple, like there's different timelines in Annihilation with Natalie Portman being the person, the expeditionary who went in and out of this alien zone. Absolutely loved the story there, but he had the narrative backdrop. So like the written narrative backdrop. So I wonder if that 
became a new factor. But I think he's a novel writer as well, so I'm not going to discredit him there. Uh, and then Ex Machina, when I first saw that film, the Turing test, any lover of sci-fi or like just, you know, that world will learn about the Turing test and go, oh my gosh, like what? Like, what is this thing? And then you go out and you play like Portal or you play um, these different games that kind of lean into the eerie when it comes to robotic elements. Ex Machina is that. It's an eerie story. It kind of goes into nor- to nightmare, but um, plays with those strings of here's a robot, um, who is so human can you tell the difference and that was enough for me to go in there and just be ready for the ride here i don't know which ride i was on would you at least say that it is worth the theatrical experience if yes you know what there is a viewer out there who i think will appreciate the theatrical experience of this film hi viewer out there hi viewer out there i think that you are the minority to any others who who have who have listened to these words uh i assure you you will get an experience when you watch this at home. I don't think that it's strictly uh, exclusive to theaters. Brandon, we are talking about Emergency, and this will be a solo review over in your corner. So I'll drink some water, and you can talk to our viewers about Emergency. Stay hydrated. Uh, Emergency, this is the newest sort of uh, indie comedy satire thriller experience uh, from Amazon. It is done by Kerry Williams and Katie Davala. Uh, Kerry Williams is the director. Katie Davala is the screenwriter. They are adapting this from their short of the same name, I believe, from 2018, I believe. Uh, basically, it's a feature-like expansion on that short. Uh, we see RJ Kyler return from the short. You may know him from things like Me and Earl the Dying Girl, from Power Rangers, uh, from a couple other things here and there. He was in that Swamp Thing series for a while, which was a weird experiment, but I'm glad it happened. Uh, now that you're here, let's talk about Emergency. We follow two Black college students, Sean, played by Kyler, and Kunle, played by a newcomer, Donald Elise, Wat- Donald Elise Watkins. Uh, Sean comes much more from a lower-class background. Kunle comes from... Uh, an immigrant family who really values responsibility. They wanted to become a doctor. He is much more concerned on like bacterial physics and things like that. So but he makes a joke early in the movie when he's talking to his mom, just like, well, I'll technically be a doctor, just not, you know, working on hearts, like that kind of thing. So one night uh, they come back to their house. They're going to go on this big thing called a legendary tour, which if you've seen uh, The World's End from, um, uh, from Edgar Wright, think basically that like the alcohol bar tour kind of thing. Uh, they come back, they're getting ready to, you know, go out for the night. They're going to leave their roommate, Carlos, played by uh, Sebastian Chacon. They're going to leave him home because he's kind of a square, at least to them. But, you know, he's got a good heart kind of thing. But eventually they all come downstairs. And what do they find? An unconscious white girl, uh, later named Emma, played by uh, Maddie Nichols, who is just kind of lying there, growing up, doesn't know where she is, uh, is just kind of left there. They don't know how she got there. Uh, Kunle begs them to call 911, but Sean and Carlos think differently. They basically think, well, we're three brown guys who just found an unconscious white girl in our house. What are the police going to think? And so there's a whole debate between that and thus leads to a giant chase around town to either get this girl some help, drop her off at the party, uh, drop her off with friends, just try and get her away from them. At the same time, we do also have a slight B-plot. We have Sabrina Carpenter, who plays Maddie. Emma's sister, who basically has been trying to keep track of her, she's at another party down the street. She sees her phone is off and goes, uh, okay, where's my sister? Uh, she gets a couple of her friends to try and track down this phone. And it becomes, again, this chase movie of the guys trying to get the Emma to say the Emma, the guys trying to get Emma to safety and uh, Maddie and her friends trying to track down her sister and just find out what the heck happened. This is really interesting. And I was getting a long response of this from uh, this past year's Sundance. This was one of the films I was hearing a lot of buzz about. And coming out of it, yeah, it's pretty good. The whole point of Emergency, I think, is to put you in a space of Sean and Kunle and Carlos's characters 
the nuance of black and brown identity of America, but also making really stupid, spontaneous decisions and kind of finding that weird satirical point in between, which is really difficult to find. Like, I'm kind of shocked that the movie does this as well as it does. Uh, I do want to praise quickly the performances real quick. Uh, RJ Kyler, who I've been a fan of since Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, I think is fantastic. I really have been hoping for him to really break out as a star. He's really quite good in this. But Donald Elise Watkins is someone to watch. He has a couple of really poignant emotional scenes in this movie, particularly one in the third act that, you know, if you imagine what this concept of the movie is, you can probably pinpoint what it's going to be. But there is a really pivotal emotion sequence that he has to weigh on. And there is such strength in his eyes and his facial expressions that you cannot help but really identify with him. I also love how it's a movie that goes into the idea of the the kind of monolithic nature of how we sometimes view blackness in America, that like Kunle and Sean are people from two very different financial and socioeconomic backgrounds, but that doesn't make either of them less of their identity. And there's a lot of sequences where Sean in particular is very insecure about his identity. Kunle is very uh, much the opposite. He's very proud of himself and who he is. And then you kind of have Carlos in the middle who just kind of wants everyone to get along. You know, he, he's got his fanny pack with granola bars. Like he's more... Uh, not lack of nuance, but he's a bit more op optimistic to the whole thing. Sabrina Carpenter is actually quite good in this too. Like her character is frankly a little despicable at times, but at the same time, you kind of buy into her mission throughout. Her friends are kind of interesting. Uh, needless to say, like it's a movie that knows what it sets out to do. It nails a very weird satirical map. I, I will admit the middle of the movie drags on a little bit. You can clearly make the argument of like, this was best as a short, like this was made as like a 20 minute story that got stretched out to, I believe it's, no, it's only, it's less than 90 minutes. So it's only like an hour and 20 minutes, something like that. Uh, it's very streamlined. I think it's for what it is, but it does feel stretched out for the type of story it's going for. Needless to say, I think it's really entertaining for lack of a better word, but it's also really investing for a portrait of, again, blackness in America and the idea of, satirizing how we sometimes view that through a certain lens. Do you feel like they ever do a a disservice to like the what the reaction should be or like what the situational awareness should be when you have somebody that's unconscious in your midst like that can go very wrong. So I want to know like did you feel like they tackled on those topics um like uh comfortably did they navigate them well? How did you how did you feel as a viewer uh, as they approached that? It doesn't feel repetitive to me. Like, it's not just, can we do this now? Okay, no, here's another thing. It's actually, can we do this now? No, here's another layer to this conversation that you didn't think about. Here's another layer of like what college life is like or what my life is like, or, you know, where her loved ones might be. Even when we do get some stuff with Emma, that's some revelations with the character. They don't really, they don't really negate any of, again, the ideas of blackness and fear and paranoia that have really set in over institutionalized racism and police brutality and those kind of things. So when I think the movie tries to address it, it is mostly successful. It's whenever it tries to derail it to something else that I think it maybe wobbles a little. Even as you go through, you're not quite sure whose side you're on. Like, are you on Kunle's side? Do you want to believe in this? Like, do you really truly think that if, if you went through that route and just called the authorities, would there be no cause for concern there? And the reality is there's still a lot of people in this country and a lot of people in positions of authority that would think the cynicism that Sean and Carlos are thinking. So for me, this is a really solid eight out of 10. Again, I wanted to go higher with this, but it does still feel like a short that's elongated into a feature-length film. That being said, it's a pretty good feature-length film elongated from a short. Like, again, I think the performances are great. Remember the name Donald Elise Watkins. He's really quite good in this, and I think he should, frankly, get all the performances going forward. But again, like, the camaraderie between the groups is really there. It's funny when it needs to be. It's really dark at times, but again, like, it finds the balance for you to really acknowledge it. It's got a situation that I think 
is not universally identifiable, but is identifiable enough to really garner a lot of nuance and discussions out of, you know, it doesn't do everything right, but I was shocked at how much I was invested in it. And uh, Emergency is streaming right now on Amazon. It's also in select theaters. I think you should probably just check it out on Amazon just for all things considered. We are going to move on to our final wide release of the day. Are you my wingman, Noah? Copy that. Good. I'm not going to die today. Uh, <laughs> Top Gun Maverick is finally in theaters, and it is getting money at the box office and a lot of acclaim. Again, is the sequel 36 years later. We once again follow Tom Cruise back as Pete Maverick Mitchell, having spent basically decades as a captain. They make a reference earlier in the movie to like, you had the opportunity to basically do whatever you want and you just kind of stayed here. So what are you doing with your life? He just kind of wants to fly planes and, you know, do whatever he kind of wants. Right as he's about to get kicked out of the Navy, they get one last call from Iceman, who Valcomer returns in this, and essentially is just like, you've got to go back to Top Gun. There's a thing going on there. You got to teach the new class of kids how to fly the planes. And he's like, I want to do that. And they're like, otherwise you're going to get fired. And he's like, I'm going to do that. Among the new class in there, it's basically the best of the best from various Top Gun branches. We follow uh, Glenn Powell there as Hangman, the kind of jerk bag who, you know, just believes himself to be the best of the best. We also follow Lewis Pullman as Bob, one of the uh, radar navigators. Monica Barbaro, who's one of the few uh, female cadets there as Phoenix. Most importantly, though, we follow Miles Teller as Lieutenant Bradley Bradshaw, a.k.a. Rooster, the son of Maverick's late wingman Goose, who has a pretty stark and not friendly history with Maverick under the command of John Hamm Cyclone, who is trying to make sure that this mission to an Iranian nuclear plant goes well. They basically have to, you know, do the thing from the first movie, go through flight tests, go through dogfight tests and tension all their to boots. Let's get into it. And I should also mention, uh, you know, Jennifer Connelly's in there, JLS in their pretty large supporting cast. Val Kilmer, as I mentioned, shows back up there as Iceman, although I will not spoil how. Noah, over to you. Uh, Top Gun is a movie that has become beloved to a pretty large sect of the movie going populous as, a, as exemplified from the latest box office and critical success. How familiar were you with the original? And what did you think of Maverick? So, no, I haven't seen the original Top Gun. Oh, okay. It's about jets. Words, okay. words to describe this movie. Sweat, heat, jets. <laughs> Jeans. <laughs> aviators. Aviator sunglasses. Yes. Mustaches. And that's about where my list kind of becomes less hilarious. Um, but this movie, I think, would work or it feels like it would have worked back in the 2000s when everything was about like hoorah and like let's go and let's sweat and let's put on our jumpsuits tell me why i loved it tell me why i'm having these critiques about it but i'm sitting in the theater right and I, I did actually see this one solo and i'm i sit here and i and i look at the runtime and i kind of i kind of groan to be honest because i'm like it's over two hours i'm not sure if i have enough to like enjoy this experience past the 20 minute mark psych big psych because whatever this movie does you know uh, absolutely it's in um uh joseph kaczynski's direction where the movie starts out a perfect introduction to um maverick's character tom cruise as maverick who is hanging out he throws on his his <laughs> cool ass leather jacket and he's off to go test the new speed of whatever kind of um you know aerial aerial jet that they have that they're working on the mac 9 i think is what comes to, to mind but i have no idea what they're called um it's a sequel but it doesn't really need to be you know this could just be another top gun film i was intrigued i was entertained and i was there for the thrill for now you know yeah what are those early comments 
I am weirdly high on this movie. Like I, I have weird feelings about the original Top Gun. On the one hand, it does exactly what it sets out to do. And I get the appeal behind it. And, you know, it's 80s cheese at its best. Kaczynski and company for, you know, Maverick don't really do that much different for this. It's very much in the style of that. That being said, does it work in that style? Yeah, it, it really does. Like credit to like Kaczynski and Cruz and Christopher McQuarrie who wrote the script and the whole team behind it. They have taken Tony Scott's style from the original, perfectly modding it to present day aesthetic. Like you mentioned, it's a movie at a time. I think it feels very much of the 2020s. Tell me you haven't heard the familiar story of we're going to bring in like old, like cool kind of breaks. Oh, 100%. You know what I mean? Like teacher, misfit teacher to come in to teach this ragtag group of students. And they end up, you know, building bond, establishing camaraderie and fulfilling the mission. Like I, I got goosebumps saying that because the way the movie like. The way the movie is shot, it inclines you to believe in the mission. What is that mission? I couldn't name it. I couldn't tell you like the details of what they're actually stopping because the movie doesn't really need to flex those plot points. It really just needs you to understand Maverick is a story about Maverick's leadership and how he can pass that on to the next generation. Some of which have, um, you know, family ties to Maverick's time at Top Gun himself with Rooster. And we should also mention Claudia Miranda shot this, who shot all of uh, Joseph Kaczynski's projects. Really good. I'm forgetting who the name of the stunt coordinator is, but like the stunts they get out of the airplanes and out of the actual pilots themselves and kind of pushing them to their limits, you feel all of that. And I think the movie goes double time in whatever nuance it lacks. It goes double time in making you feel viscerally attached to these characters in, you know, good, bad, you know, weird, horny, whatever ways you want. But like, it's always emotionally gravitated towards the characters. And I kind of, I respect the hell out of it for going that way, even though, again, those, you know, side eyes from the first movie are still there. But I kind of didn't care because, again, it's just so fun. Watching it alone, I like cover my mouth with my hands and I like look to my left and my right. But I have no friends in the theater with me <laughs> because there's the moments of like, oh, we're panning down and we get like nothing but the opened, the opened top of the button down shirt. And it's uh, Miles Teller's few chest hairs like pumping through. It's the porn stash that he rocks. It's all this. Let me tell you, everybody is sweating <laughs> in this movie. Like, well, like yeah. He even like the one love scene between like Cruz and Jennifer Connelly is just like them sitting down and talking. Yeah. And I, that, I think to me, this, it just, they have a break in the middle of the film where to establish further camaraderie, they play football on the beach. And I was like, this is 2006. Like what, <laughs> what am I, right now? This, is, this is not supposed to be happening in 2023. I'm so happy that it does. Cause I felt like I felt like I was trans like time traveling while I was watching it. Like this movie was easy to pick up, easy to follow, easy to be entertained by the fact that they could have just had like crews in front of a green screen in the cockpit and just showing off like all these different um, simulated tricks with computer with CGI. I was so happy to learn that like these are real jets that they're using. And so, and oh, I think one of the fun facts was like one of the sets got blown away after the initial take. So it's- Yeah, the top of the cabin. Top of the cabin with um, Ed Harris, right? That scene? Yes. You're watching this movie and this is the film that you have to go to theaters to see. This is the unique theatrical experience will elevate its, its integrity and it's um, like the rewarding experience entirely. And it's funny because even though we're kind of being, you know, a bit coy with the thing of like, oh, you know, it's light on story and nuance, that kind of thing. 
I would argue this has more nuance than anything of the first movie, because again, there's that central conflict between uh, between Maverick and Rooster. And there is actually poignancy there. Like there is that sense of like, you failed my dad and I'm not going to be that idiot again. And Maverick is just kind of that mentality of you're not being an idiot. You're just being cautious. And you kind of have to throw that to the wind to be a pilot. And again, while you can argue of like the actual morality of that nature, like it works as an emotional through line for the movie. So that when you do get to the dog fights and that third act, which, oh my God, I don't know about you. I love the third act so much. But like when you get to that point, you are, you are attached to these characters in one way or another for whatever archetype they represent. Even as the the guy who's quote unquote like the jerk character that you've been following. Glenn Powell steals this movie and he's so good. The last hour and a half you spend kind of like resenting this dude for just being cocky and being ignorant and uh, stubborn. But then he gets left on the carrier when they take on that final mission. Um, I don't find this entirely being a spoiler. He's left on the carrier and you like you're kind of like, oh, damn it. Like he can't join. But for the most part, you're kind of relieved because you already have so much investment in the characters who are involved in the final mission that you're just like, who am I going to see fall? Because if there's six people going in, I don't know if that means six people are coming out. And so that, that was the emotional stakes I felt going into that final act. I'm happy that they did what they did. You know, this movie I think works from beginning to end and uh, for fans out there or sorry, for newcomers out there who, hear the Top Gun title and think like American propaganda. Like, I don't need to watch this. I think there's so much more behind it. And I think that, um, like I said, the mission kind of falls through the, through the grate because, or sorry, the mission kind of stays on top while all the emotionality falls through the grate. And that's really what you're able to sit and ponder on and really enjoy. And Tom Cruise, I mean, (laughs) the, the man is, I'll watch him sprint through, fly through anything. Spoiler, Tom Cruise does get to run in this. I won't say how, but he just gets to run. And like, even going back to that just before we finish, like we kind of have this notion right now, just like Tom Cruise is like the action star who can't be beat. Like he can do no wrong in that department. Like we were just you know, gushing over Mission Impossible and that kind of thing. I think he gets to play a bit more nuance. Like it reminded me a bit of the notion of like him in, um, uh, in Rogue Nation where he kind of gets to take the Ethan Hunt character and turn it on its head. And here he gets to kind of do the same thing with Maverick where when Rooster is presented, suddenly that whole, you know, facade of oh i'm you know i'm all that i'm the best fighter pilot alive and he's not not that but like that facade kind of falls apart once that character is presented to him once jennifer connelly ranches the picture like once those old demons are reopened there is a bit more of complexity added into there and cruz is completely capable about it and we just kind of forget that sometimes our new romantic interest the lulav interest the bar owner here um the mojave are they in the mojave desert uh well they start out there they go to san diego for top gun go to San Diego. Um, she's the new love interest in Top Gun Maverick. It's Jennifer Connelly. She's back. You would never guess that she was like gone from the first film. Well, she, well that's the thing. She, she isn't even in the first film. She's referenced in the first film. I mentioned in the first film. I'm watching this going, wow, they must like, I've seen the posters. Like she must be the, she must be the, like the girlfriend in the first one. Psych, Brandon, that's not even her, right? <laughs> so do we know whether why she wasn't attached is the actor. Oh, why um, uh, why Kelly McGinnis isn't? Yeah. I don't know. And I haven't been able to find a definitive answer on that. And it still kind of irks me. But like, you're not the only one. Like I've heard even people who defend this film with their lives being like, why didn't you bring back Charlie? And I'm also like, yeah, why didn't you bring back Charlie? Like, there's no reason not to. Do you think that bringing back other characters benefited the story? Um, because there obviously was decisions made where they said, this is going to be cut. We're not bringing them back, but they are going to bring back somebody like Rooster. They are going to bring somebody like somebody back like Iceman. How did you think those fit 
um, as far as like continuing their relationships with uh, Maverick. Well, Rooster wasn't really a character in the first movie. Like he was there, but he didn't have, you know, he was a kid. Like he was there to be a kid in an 80s movie. Uh, Val Kilmer, on the other hand, I'm really, I'm really pleasantly surprised how they used him because obviously Val Kilmer has, you know, gone through a lot of health issues in the past. His, you know, act, his activity and his acting career has kind of gone down in recent years. So I was curious how exactly they were going to use him. And I was kind of really proud of how they did. Like it didn't feel manipulative. It felt like true to who Kilmer's abilities were, but also true to his relationship with Cruz. And, you know, obviously the idea between Iceman and Maverick and their rivalry, it all felt like the dynamic was still there and he's not in it that much, but when he is, it's probably some of the most powerful moments in the movie. And again, if you're a fan of the original, you're going to be completely on board with it. I had to read the, uh, the credits underneath the writers uh, because there is a, there's that scene between Iceman and Maverick where one of the lines that is like the exiting line is, uh, <laughs> you know, do you still think you're the best pilot? Or- <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And Maverick responds, you know, like, let's end this on a good note or something like that. And that kind of back and forth between somebody who you understand is respect, respected, like high praise from Maverick and somebody who looks at Maverick from a mentorship angle. Um, I just love I love that that was communicated through the lines that they read. And uh, kudos to Peter Craig, Jack Epps Jr. and Jim Cash, all being credited as um, writers for Maverick. And you know what, Aaron Kruger too, who I give a lot of crap to, who I don't think is a great screenwriter, but you know what, this is a great movie from him. Um, and I do want to quickly mention, uh, Herod Faltermeyer comes back for the score with uh, Lady Gaga, Hans Zimmer, and Lauren Balfi. And it's all great. Like, it's got the Top Gun rip in there. The end song actually works a lot better in the movie than it does in isolation. I was just kind of, it had that sense of yeah to it that the movie I think really needs. Let's move on to our ratings then. For me, this is a, I can't believe I'm saying this, this might be a 9 out of 10. In terms of just sheer movie going entertainment value and a and as a legacy sequel, as a Tom Cruise action vehicle, it works on all three levels in spades. The performances are great, and you get attached to all of them really easily. Joseph Kaczynski, I think, has officially made his stance as an action director. I think for a long time, he was kind of the guy who did Tron Legacy. Well, I didn't like Tron Legacy. Well, he's done plenty of things since then. I think he's shown his ambition as a director since. I love the tentacle elements behind it. The actual fighter chases will have you on the edge of your seat every single time. They're shot so well. They're framed within an inch of their life, and I just think it... It has that emotional viscerality that you need for a movie like this. Go see it in a theater. I got lucky enough to see it in IMAX and oh my God, the sound of this movie kills. And just the idea of it as a movie about grief and legacy and how you tackle those complications of old wounds. Like it has substance to it that I frankly don't think the original was ever intent on tackling. It lacks a lot and I'm not going to act like it's perfect or, you know, redoes any of the stuff the first, uh, the first movie did. But for what it is, yeah, this is a damn good time. It is also the same score as me, Brandon, at least for the, you know, the type of viewer that I was, which was, it's not out of 10 for me because nothing was swinging at me from the trailers. Nothing of the marketing really told me like, really go see this film. Um, but that didn't mean that I wasn't going to give it time and attention, of course, for this podcast, but also just for um, taking part of this experience that we know to be dear to Tom Cruise um, as a performer. And so watching this film, I really didn't know what to expect. And then to walk out having shed tears, having felt like the camaraderie um, that I saw on screen, um, making me like just a better believer in like this type of narrative. Um, I had so much fun and it, it really just drew me in and it didn't let go. And this movie's loud as hell. And I love that because jets are freakishly loud. Um, it, they're fast and they're scary. And um, I'm happy, safe here on the ground, but uh, my score stays high. 
In other words, it took our breath away. Uh, the Top Gun Maverick is playing in theaters right now, and we highly encourage you to see it in theaters. But if you are listening to it as of right now, if we're uploading this, you might be able to see it on Paramount Plus as well. They had a full like 45 day window. So if you can catch it there and you don't feel safe in theaters, do it. If not, please go see it in the theater. It's absolutely worth your time. Now moving on. We are Stranger Things season four, part four, what you want to call it. The whole season, season four, dropped. part one. <laughs> the whole series, the, the whole season dropped. Brandon, what episode did you get to? What are we talking today? Well, it's not the whole season. It's volume one of season four because for the weirdly, we're getting the first seven episodes, which have dropped on Netflix. And then we're getting the last two, which are basically full length movies. Oh, I'm sitting here like open mouth because I'm like, what the hell? I clicked into the series and I saw seven or eight episodes, you know, and I thought they did it again. You know, <laughs> I thought like they didn't learn. That darn Netflix. Like, oh my gosh. And I've, and I've, I'm totally tuning into what you're saying. These episodes, they passed the hour and 10 mark happily, proudly <laughs> with uh, no remorse. They're just like, we're sailing ahead. And each of these episodes that's over that um, 70 minute mark, you're going to get a film. Yeah, so we should mention uh, this is the premiere of season four. We're just going to be talking about the premiere today. We might get around to the later half of season one, plus the actual part two when it drops uh, in July, I believe is the release date. Uh, but we will be getting to it eventually. It just you know might take some time because again, these are long episodes. And for me, I had never actually seen Stranger Things. Oh my God, I've never seen Stranger Things. What, I'm not a horror guy. Like, of course I had never seen Stranger Things. Uh, but I finally watched it in preparation for this. And I don't think it's actually as scary as everyone's saying, minus a couple of things. We'll get into season four in a minute. But again, season four, part one, where do we pick up? Well, uh, we are about, I think, six months is the time frame after the end of season three. It's either six months or a year. I'm forgetting which. Uh, spoilers for the end of season three, if you have not gotten to that point yet. We are going to go into spoilers from the past couple of seasons, just out of necessity. Uh, the Byers family, of course, Joy, Will, and uh, Jonathan, along with Eleven, who they have now adopted. They are now out in California, starting a new life for another uh, Eleven has lost her powers, so she's kind of having to reacquaint herself with the worst thing of all time, high school. Uh, Will, meanwhile, is acting a bit weird. He's starting to paint again. Uh, Joyce has an at-home job. She's still mourning Hopper, who might be dead, might not be. Uh, the pilot happens and things turn out weird. Uh, Jonathan's a stoner. That happens. Uh, meanwhile, back in Hawkins, we follow the uh, D&D kids as they are. Uh, Mike, Dustin, uh, Lucas. Lucas is in particular trying to become one of the cool kids. He's on the basketball team now. He, um, you know, spoiler for the episode, he scores the winning basket in the uh, basketball game. Basically becomes like the town celebrity. Uh, he and Max are still broken up. All that, you know, shenanigans is going on, but we don't have time for any of that because there's creepy stuff happening in Hawkins again, particularly with the leader of the boys' new D&D group, the Hellfire Club, uh, Joe Quinn as uh, Eddie. He is basically a metalhead slash delinquent slash drug dealer, particularly to one of the young cheerleaders who becomes possessed by a creature from the Upside Down that we don't really know anything in regards to yet, but is freaking terrifying. Uh, and then we just kind of are going to go from there in the season. So now that I've basically spoiled all of the major things from the first episode, Noah, what is your experience with Stranger Things after my whole spiel? And uh, does season four live up to its promise of being darker or more mature? Season four is freaking Nightmare on Elm Street premiere. It is, I mean, what really is astounding about this series is Stranger Things feels like it has been on our screens longer than just to approach a fourth season right now. So to find itself in its fourth season and still um, like continually 
advancing its stride, trying to hit new highs. Um, I think that this show is phenomenal. I think that as an introduction to season four, I'm immediately scared for our characters. I'm intrigued for our, like for where our story can go. Um, I think being curious is, a, is an important part about the series and it, it, it absolutely makes you curious because there's a new threat looming in Hawkins. Um, as of right now, we don't know anyone who can see it. We have um, Winona Ryder who is now, there's one piece of this premiere that I think is why it's so great. We don't focus too much on the missing cop. We don't focus too yes. much on, on Hopper being missing. Now that is going to be explored in further episodes. I actually made it until episode two before having this discussion. But Hopper is in an undisclosed location in Russia. Um, we don't know what he's doing there. We don't know if they're experimenting on them. We do know that they have in their cells, Hopper's in one of them being quoted as the American from season three. And then there's a demigorgon. Like there is a demigorgon here that um, is being uh, captured and who knows what they're doing. Who knows what activity they have going on there? Winona Ryder, her character is um, examining this present that was gifted to her. It was mailed to her, it was shipped to her. She's trying to, along with her hilarious friend who I'm forgetting the name of right now, she's oh, trying- Oh, um, uh, the journalist, right? Exactly. Uh, uh, Murray, Murray. Her and her friend Murray, um, <laughs> I use friend loosely, like I'm not sure their relationship, but anyways, part of me feels like them trying to uncover the origins of this present and this gift and what it ultimately communicates is a high point for me. I really am intrigued by that. Knowing that it's connected to Hopper though, I'm less intrigued. Like I think that Hopper is, I'm sorry. I think that Hopper should die. I think that he should have been dead at the end of season three. And that's Brandon, you're making a face. I'm, I do agree. Because I do like even, even, okay. For context, I didn't finish season three. So I only went to like the epilogue of it to know that like, you know, Hopper is alive. But, Spoiler like, alert. <laughs> I already spoiled everything in the intro, but you're absolutely right. Um, but like, you're right. Even from a story perspective, just seeing like this hour long runtime and seeing everything else the show is trying to tackle. Season three felt like the most it was trying to be packed. This actually is packed. Like there feels like too much going on and then just like, oh, Hopper's alive and the Russians took him and there's more like Russian demogorgons. Like that feels like too much in addition to everything else. It's nice to see our heroes back again and like getting the focus of like, hey, we're going to follow Eleven through an entire like, we want you to understand yeah. what it's her approaching school, how she's tackling friendships, how she's tackling like adult relationships, because even her teachers are looking at her in a different way. Um, Will and Eleven are living in the same house and they're operating on a different um, relationship. Now, um, Mike goes to an entirely different school. So you're exploring the relationship of like growing pains of, hey, this was my childhood best friend. Um, with Lucas's character, are my friends going to be able to be there and support me in the same way that they always have? And we've always been there to support each other or, you know, the growing pains of sometimes these friendships evolve and they evolve separately um, or develop and they develop separate separately. Looking at Mike Wheeler, his relationship with Eleven, he still calls her Eleven, even though I think the entire school calls her Jane. The writers kept that in there for a reason. Is um, Eleven going to enjoy being brought back to her past every time she's with Mike or is, does she want to become this new person in Jane and craft this new life for herself, pretending that the bullies, the mean girls around her are actually her friends in order to impress Mike or just to not worry Mike. And um, that all happens in the first episode. I'm strapped in baby, stranger things. Like I am so 
I'm invested this season, absolutely. I will say there is something about how the actual stakes of the episode are framed that concern me a little bit. Like the whole like ending thing with um with Eddie and the cheerleader and you know whatever this main demon is going to be. Like that's not focused on the kids. Like Eddie is super cool, and I will give credit to Joe Quinn. Like I think he's so fun to watch in this first episode. He's really just a tour de force in the show. But even going as far as that, like. Most of the kids at this point don't really have focus on that. Not even like Joyce or, you know, Murray. They're not really having stakes in that yet. They're focusing on different things. So I feel like I'm worried that the show, even with its long runtime, is going to move away from that. And my whole thing is like, no, like let the kids be like the supernatural bounty hunter badasses that they're meant to be. But like, it doesn't feel like it at this point. Brandon, I said it once, Freddy Krueger from the Upside Down. This guy is, tell me, tell me this thing is not- they're fine. Absolutely. Like his introduction to us is haunting a um, like a cheerleader in a stall bathroom who Max walks in on and she hears that she's crying and then eventually is told to like, you know, I'm fine. Go away. Like, I'll deal with this. So Max leaves. And now this um, I'm I don't have the cheerleader's name in front of me, um, but it is Eddie's uh, partner. Am I correct? They're dating, right? Like they have some weird relationship. No, she's with like the the jockey basketball captain. And then they have a they actually have a really fun relationship between Eddie and the cheerleader. And I was like, oh, they're cute. And then she dies. And then she dies. Yo, whoever is like, oh, I don't really like like, you know, uh graphic material. Uh episode one's ending is pretty graphic. Like it's it's up yeah. there on in terms of like gore, not gore and gross factor but not tasteless. I think that I actually, I really liked how they wrapped up that episode, but I could see somebody who is a fan of stranger things. And the worst they saw was like Barb screaming as she got pulled into a pool. Right. But here the screams are not the only thing that you'll have. You'll have complete visuals onto what this entity, what this thing is doing to people. And you don't even know why makes it all the more scarier, makes you all the more curious. This show is really doing well in its for in its first episode. I completely agree. And like, we know that season five is coming. That will be the end. So we're already in like the, you know, infinity war of the end game of stranger things saga, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, check it out. We think it's interesting. And again, the part two will be out uh, in July. We are going to move on to our second TV thing of the day. About a couple months ago, we went on the high seas and had a good old-fashioned time with Steve Bonin and the crew over at uh, Our Flag Means Death. And we talked about the first couple episodes, and then we just kind of forgot about it for a while. And then, as Noah put it, a couple of you guys actually wanted us to go and talk about it. So we are going to wrap up the rest of the series. This is our review of episodes 3 through 10 of Our Flag Means Death going into it. Uh, Noah, I'm not sure where we start with this because... There's a couple of pretty substantial plot points. We actually got Blackbeard finally with uh, Taika Waititi playing him, whom I love. Sorry to spoil that. But then we get a sort of plot between him and Izzy to overthrow Steed. We get some stuff with Spanish Jackie. With We get going back to men. Rory Kinnear's back in here as Chauncey, uh, the twin brother of the guy that uh, Steed killed. A lot more, you know, the crew dynamics. And then the ending, which kind of leaves us on a promising note for if season two eventually does happen, which hasn't been greenlit as of yet. Uh, what did you think of this back 75% because we missed so much of our flag means death? Of course, you know, we're covering, yes, episodes three through eight because they were left on the tail end of our initial review. But really, me and Brandon are here to just talk about the show's value and whether it left us feeling warm or whether it left us feeling cold. And ultimately, like how you all should take in this show, um, what that conversation is going to feel like once you've wrapped up all these episodes. Uh, you mentioned it. Yes, um, Kinnear returns. Uh, and 
I think in a, it, cause I did rewatch like the later half of this season in prep for this discussion. And this show is littered with these comedic actors just popping up for their, these character roles. We have uh, from earlier mentions, Kristen Schaal, who we know is Louise from Bob's Burgers. We have Nick Kroll, if you're a fan of the Big Mouth or like uh, the new Netflix series that comes all- Bob's Burgers too, he's in that. Exactly. Yeah. He's in Bob's Burgers. He's credited, I think, as one of the Carnegie's, right? Or something like that. Um, and then Fred Armisen, who we should, who you all should know from like Portlandia and so many other things. Uh, this show is an excellent pedestal and I guess maybe vehicle for these actors to come in who you already adore and really just uh, <laughs> take on these different, uh, whether they're scoundrel type characters, whether they are the high society members who whose greatest weapon is passive aggression, and that is a whole that is a whole mark and lesson uh, between Blackbeard and Steed. And um, the show is romantic as hell. It has so much romance. Not even in the last, not strictly in the last few episodes, but I think from the moment um, Blackbeard and Steed meet there's that push and pull of how they toy with you. There's one little a-hole that I cannot stand in this show. He does it greatly, but I, I do not like him at all. He is, um, uh, he's not Roach. Izzy Hands, is that who I'm thinking of? Oh, uh, Izzy, played by Con O'Neill. Izzy, absolutely. Con O'Neill, you are just a little just prick in my back like he is so i think he's the part of blackbeard that you know the pirate culture wants you to remember they want you to remember that blackbeard was somebody menacing somebody cutthroat and willing to do all that it takes to be the the top pirate on top kill women kill children all of it but you meet blackbeard and he's taika like he's a pretty chill dude yes he's a captain on the high seas yes he's brutal yes he yes his past exists but that doesn't mean that he can't level it, like tone it back and still, I think, continue to grow. You know, we're, we're humans. We're always learning. And this show emulates that so well of Blackbeard being somebody who's like, hey, now that I've met you, you're somebody new in my life. You know, what can we learn from each other? And then he does. He learns. Uh, he evolves. And their relationships, um, their relationships evolve, too. So uh, I adore this show. <laughs> That's plain and simple. Brandon. It's funny, going back to our initial review of the couple episodes, I described it as like The Office with Pirates. I am very confident now framing the Steed Blackbeard dynamic as the Jim Pam will they won't they of this show. And I'm not wrong if you've seen the show. Like they are so they're so delightful in this, in this weird back and forth yin and yang type relationship that again at first doesn't seem like it would work. And I love how quickly they go into it. Like there's I think within like maybe an episode or two because they meet in three and then I think it's in like five or six that someone first points out. Of, I think it might be Lucius who's like, oh yeah, you definitely like him or maybe it's Izzy or something. But either way, I like how the show directly involves that. I'm just like, we're not going to queer bait you. We're not going to like drag this out. We're just going to actually like do it. On top of that, we already mentioned Steve Bond in the last episode and I have to give praise to Reese Darby again for finding some really great angles to Steve to not make him so unlikable or irritating. I love Taika Waititi in this show. I think he is so good. I don't know enough of his acting filmography to go into it, but this might be my favorite performance of his. He just nails so much of the balance between like frat boy, leader, but also like sentimental softy that Blackbeard in the show needs to do. And every time he's on screen with Steve, there's always a new dynamic to be played. There's always a new 
element of Blackbeard's past coming into play that we're not so sure about. But it's not always a Blackbeard show. It's still very much a seed show, and he still very much gets to be the lead. But their dynamic is so often what drags, what drags, what you know, kind of moves forward the stories, moves forward the crew, and I love how the crew themselves become kind of parts of that relationship in certain regards. There is a moment where Steed actually has to return to the family that he essentially abandoned to become. Oh, yeah, he, he abandoned his family. He abandoned his family to become a pirate. <laughs> and that's something you'd hear gossip about and then giggle and then go, at least not my husband. And then your husband leaves you the next day for the baker. But anyways, um, speaking on Steed, in that later episode where he returns to Mary Bonnet, portrayed by uh, Claudia O. o- Doherty, uh, she's she's so funny because as his widow, she comes he comes back to her and it's believed that he's dead, but he comes back to her and she is fed up like she is absolutely tired of this man haunting her but now he's actually back and he's not dead so it doesn't surprise me that she actually tries to kill him but i think what ensues after their meeting or after their reintroduction is just a an honest conversation between this couple where they both saw different realities of their different realities of their present and they've created a family and then had a different future plan for themselves as individuals um what steve did was wrong it was terrible do the two still have effective communication I think so. And she is, I mean, the show, yes, like this sounds like it's so serious, but the show is a comedy. So they make it work given the genre. And uh, another reason for you to check it out is, you know, I'm saying these things as if I'm arguing a point, but you and I are on that, like we're on similar playing field here where we both just think that this show is um, a really effective in doing what it does. Uh, take the actor uh, Vico Ortiz, who plays Jim and how it tackles the identity of somebody who was disguising themselves as a male um, pirate with a beard and everything and uh, going in as mute only to be discovered to uh, have a completely different identity entirely and still explore romantic elements within that with uh, Oluwande. And then for all intents and purposes, the the TV show does tackle, I think, the gym disguising themselves as, you know, put, putting on this male uh, appearance, but underneath it being uh, female, but the actor does use um, they, them, and their pronouns. So this show, yeah, even in the pirate era, is incorporating like multi- different identities that exist in modern world and communicating that. And so what other show is doing it? You know, what show is doing it? Like our flag means death. Uh, it's a show that is defying both comedy and pirate conventions, but definitely the latter, because I feel like it's taking kind of just a giant middle finger to like Pirates of the Caribbean or like Mutiny on the Bounty or like any kind of pirating, you know, privateering show of just like, oh yeah, they were, you know, prideful men who, you know, went out on the sea and took what they won. Like, yeah, they were kind of that, but they were also just like guys doing things, like just sitting around and getting scurvy or like making fun of aristocrats or like stuff like that. Uh, Blackbeard and Steed culminates to a point where they both share a kiss on a beach and really like um, explore fantasized future for themselves being uh, co-captains or, you know, Black or Captain Blackbeard and Steed on Blackbeard's ship. Um, Who knows what the the hierarchy of power will be when when the two are together. But then there's a major rift that occurs because... um, 
Oh my gosh, this show is coming back to me. Uh, much of Steve's crew is left abandoned on a small island and Blackbeard believes that Steed is done for and no longer wants to pursue this future with him. So you all, like we all thought the Kraken was this mystical super entity that existed in the ocean to come out and wreck the seas as Blackbeard's fury. Psych. The Kraken is the culmination of Blackbeard's evilest traits. And when they come out, he's transformed and now he is that killer instinct and that that kind of got me when they did that where um i don't know if he actually says it or if somebody quotes him but they just say you know blackbeard has always been the kraken or something along those lines and that kind of made me go ooh. but then it's heartbreaking because he just shared his love with steed We'll go into ratings really quickly. We said pretty much all of our piece. For me, this is a very solid eight and a half out of 10. And I am only reticent to not give it a nine just because I feel like it can be better. I feel like some of the serialization elements, like the actual overarching plot could be a little bit better. We don't really get those until like the second half of the season. Uh, I think some of the pacing is a little bit weird. I wish some of the like lower level crew members got their shine. Like the Swede, I want to see more of like those guys. But at the same time, again, the humor is there. The drama is really effective. The romance is pretty much perfect for what it needs to be. I adore Taika Waititi in this. I'm starting my campaign for him to get an Emmy nomination. I really do think he deserves it. But I just think it is a great, you know, kind of turning over its head of genre conventions that for the longest time were taken so dead face seriously. And this just this gets to be a playful pirate movie. And I was all for it for the ride. You got the stellar cast of the crew members being like everywhere in between the imbecile pirate who does, doesn't care about anything but his next meal to the in intellectual pirate who is trying to uh, get by on their wits and being smart. There's the there's Lucius, who is the scribe, who um, also uses their charm to get what he wants. And all of that explored within this like pirate setting on the seas. This is a show that I'm so happy that we have when we have it. Like in, in present day, I think that I'm just so happy that everything that I'm watching doesn't have to be this intense um, 10 episode series that like has like what you say. I think that what you say is like it's part of the reason why you can't bump it up to a nine is almost why I feel like I give it a lot of praise because it's that show where I don't need to tune in 300% to understand. I can watch the surface level and it's going to hit me with the emotionality. It's going to hit me with the laughs. If I want to pick it apart, if I want to apply another sense of observation to it, I still find myself enjoying the ride and uh, it's a short season and I just kind of breeze right by it. So this is a 10. I think this is a 10. And uh, Whoa. yeah, um, I did. I, I even surprised myself when I typed it earlier, but I'm sticking by it. I really do uh, admire this series. And Reese Darby was not a familiar name for me at all. I will be changing that. Definitely. He is so talented and most of the cast are. Uh, the entire first season of Our Flag Means Death is currently streamed on HBO Max. As we said, go watch it. It's a ton of fun. Get scurvy with us. Thank you for talking Our Flag Means Death. Uh, doom, 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 doom. I don't know what song I'm doing. In the galaxy. Oh. In the galaxy. Is, is it in a far in a far away galaxy long long ago how do i not know the intro lines a long time ago in a galaxy far far away <laughs>
Let me rewind that. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there is one wanderer who rules them all. Obi-Wan Kenobi. We are, I don't know where this voice is coming from. I'm ready for like the, the Transformers movie, like. Da, ba, da, ba, da, ba. <laughs> but I'm having so much fun. Brandon, let's dive right into Obi-Wan Kenobi. We got a two episode premiere off of Disney Plus. Ewan McGregor returns and you've got more details. I'm sure. What can you share? Obi-Wan Kenobi finally here we have waited so long and by we i mean me i have waited for this for 15 years uh it's been in development as a movie for a long time uh originally steven daldry was attached and i was really excited for that and then Hossein amini came to write it on and then all the anthology stuff got canceled and we thought this was a goner and then ewan mcgregor came out on star wars celebration a couple of years ago and was like i'm doing this and we were all like yes and then we didn't see a trailer for a while and we we're like where is it and then we finally got it, you know, just in time for Star Wars Celebration. In fact, actually, the Star Wars Celebration crowds got to see this about two days in advance. And I am a little envious that they all got to enjoy this with an audience, as we'll talk about with the show. Uh, it's created by uh, Deborah Chow and, you know, the whole brain trust over at Lucasfilm, uh, John Favreau, Dave Filoni, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, that whole team. Uh, and Joby Harold, who wrote the majority of the script with uh, Hossein Amini. We pick up with the titular Obi-Wan Kenobi once again, played gloriously by Ewan McGregor, beard, mullet, hair and all. Uh, and great costume choice as well. I really like the kind of switch up in costumes of the first episode. We pick up about 10 years after the events of Order 66, a.k.a. Revenge of the Sith, a.k.a. Episode 3 back from 2005. In this time, Obi-Wan has basically been living a, you know, styled life in via uh, in the vein of Logan, in the vein of other, you know, deserted cowboys that we've seen in fiction. He's working at a basically a meat processing plant on Tatooine. In his spare time, he's watching over, you know, young Luke and, you know, Owen and Beru, played once again here by uh, Bonnie P.S. and Joel Edgerson, respectively. He's basically just kind of minding his time until, you know, Luke becomes force, uh, until Luke becomes force sensitive, if he ever does. One day, though, uh, a Jedi is found on Tatooine and we get the Inquisitors, who are basically dark side users who are not Sith, but they're trained to be Sith, who are trained to hunt down Jedi. They've been doing it for 10 years and they're like, oh, good, a Jedi, we can go kill him. Uh, one of them specifically played by uh, Moses Ingram named Reva, a.k.a. the third sister. Uh, another one, the Grand Inquisitor, who's the head of all of them, played by River Friend, who if you watch Star Wars Rebels, he popped up in there voiced by Jason Isaacs. And finally, the fifth brother, played by uh, Sun King from the Fast and Furious movies. Uh, the three of them kind of pop up. They chase down Obi-Wan you know, eventually kind of track him down. Third sister, and specifically, again, Moses Ingram's character is very interested in Obi-Wan. She wants him absolutely dead. There's a whole backstory that we haven't explored with that yet. But she comes up with a plan to work with some mercenaries, played by Flea with the Red Hot Chili Peppers of all people, to kidnap a certain person who Obi-Wan has a connection to that will draw him out and eventually, you know, get him killed. And the galaxy will finally be rid of that, you know, Jedi scum. Who do they get by chance? Uh, spoilers, if you have not watched the episode, we are going into it. This is a massive thing. They get Princess Leia, uh, here played by uh, Vivian Blair from uh, We Can Be Heroes. Uh, we'll see Jimmy Smith's back as Bail Organa. Needless to say, the bandits kidnap Leia. They take her to another planet, and Bail begs and basically succeeds in getting Obi-Wan to go off world and find him. And so we are left on one last journey for Obi-Wan to go rescue the princess and save the day and hopefully stay out the eyes of the Inquisitors. And... Darth Vader as well, played once again by Hayden Christensen and the fandom has been rejoicing and I am with them. Noah, over to you. I don't know if you've necessarily had the same old anticipation on the series that I have, or maybe you have, and I'd like to be enlightened on that. What did you think going into this just of Obi-Wan's story post Revenge of the Sith, the ideas that you have been hearing floating in the ether? And then what did you think of these first two episodes uh, directed by Deborah Chow? 
there was nothing that you could say that was going to deter me from enjoying these, this uh, new series from Disney Plus. Uh, is Luke, I mean, is our Star Wars world going to be the same as what it was when uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi like uh, was on all of our screens for the prequel trilogy? Um, no, but change is, change is constant. Change is always arriving. All I knew was that this star was returning to a role that got us all, for a lot of us, it's like a generational sweep of our interest because of um, his performance. And um, at least I say that coming from myself because I think Revenge of the Sith, whenever it came out, I know uh, probably later uh, in the 2000s, I remember that was a movie my uncle took me to theaters at. So that to me was like the elevated Star Wars experience because it was the one that I saw in theaters. So I'm I'm part of the I will die on Revenge of the Sith is uh, the I almost said the B word is the best of the prequel trilogy. I'll say that, you know, Revenge of the Sith was the best for me. And uh, that's that's because of that Obi and Anakin relationship to see them still give uh, a spotlight and uh, story importance to uh, Padme and Padme's twins, Leia and Luke. Uh, the, the, the focus on Luke is, is important, but whenever there's a focus on one of the twins, I mean, if it's Luke's story, it's Leia's story. And that's why I felt like it made complete sense for us to have this sort of uh origin story behind who Leia Organa was as she was a young child coming up in the world um, before she lost her planet, before she went on the galactic adventure that we know to be the original trilogy. Um, and after all these years, as you say, uh, there's plenty of things to grab your attention here, even if it's not the return of Obi-Wan, perhaps the third sister, because the Inquisitors are dreadful they are they're scary they're terrifying i love that we have the repeated image of whether it's in the mandalorian whether it's in any kind of like star wars title you name it's you have that village in tatooine or you have that community and all of them you get stricken with fear when this ship arrives and those like commanders come out of their come out from the uh, deck it's just, I think it's so familiar, but it's so right for Star Wars that once it happened, I was like, now I'm in here again. Now I'm on this world again. I'm on Tatooine with you. Tatooine's not the best environments to explore in the Star Wars world, but hey, that's where Obi-Wan is uh, and Luke. <laughs> I'm wondering, did you also forget in Revenge of the Sith when Yoda specifically mentions Anakin as Darth Vader? Because I did. Oh, okay. So he he warns Obi-Wan that he so he says it. That's right. He's like, yes. So in Revenge of the Sith, he's like, gone the boy you trained is replaced by Darth Vader. Oh, that's right. definitely Darth Vader. Because in my head, when I was leading up to the series, I thought he's going to hear about a guy in a mask and then yeah. find out it's Anakin. And I was like, no, he knows like Anakin is Vader. I forgot about that. Of course, Yoda points out to, okay, Obi-Wan hearing the words that like Anakin is alive still. Oh, oh. And yes. Moses Ingram as Reva, who's just like eating up that scene of just like, yeah, I just rocked your whole world, didn't I? I was waiting for the moment between uh, the two Inquisitors. We have the third sister and uh, the one that she kills on Dayu. I was waiting for one of them to go down because she has the type of, she has that type of, um, uh, what's the word? Like uh, she's bloodthirsty, but it's because she, she, her, there's a line written in there for her that she says, eventually when she shows that she has captured Obi-Wan, she'll get what she deserves. So it feels like it's a long time coming. This is a reckoning of sorts for her. And so eventually I think she's going to have some 
in like she's already had action moments to shine there's plenty ahead for us and she wields a red saber she's not afraid to pull it out the jedi have lost this war and we need more jedi battles for this season we've gotten a couple but obi-wan so far has only pulled out his blaster and we of course I also love going just a little bit back and we have so much else to talk about, but like, I love the little scene that we get between uh, Obi-Wan and Owen. And I love the notion, because for a long time, Owen's kind of been played as like the well-meaning but strict uncle. We never really got characterization from him. And I was curious to see, especially what Joel Edgerton could do, because, you know, when he was cast, he was a nobody. And now he's, you know, Joel Edgerton. And I just love that moment between him and Moses Ingram. Just like, yeah, like, okay, you can try and kill me, but like, there's going to be consequences. Like that sense of standing tall to the dark side, just a normal, I'm a sucker for any type of, you know, just normal citizen standing up to evil type thing. And like, that was just a great moment for me. And he doesn't even want Obi-Wan there. Like you think that oh. the relationship is so um, sim- like a mutual, but it's not like Obi-Wan is there because he feels this duty toward Luke in case he is force sensitive in case he's sh- quote unquote, like is showing. But as, as the, as the guardian of Luke, he's kind of like, I don't want you here. Like you're the reason these inquisitors are coming to us and searching for us, pillaging um, and killing the Jedi that they find here you don't like you have no business here almost and then that's when the call to search and rescue for leia comes in um i I, having never understood like princess side of Leia, like what really made her um royalty like on on um and it's not endor um on on alderaan um learning about her mother and her father and like how they operate in their world I'm intrigued by that. I need to see, I want to see more of who Leia was outside of Leia and Luke or Leia and Han, like this growing Leia, what was that early life like? Because she really rejects all, all, um, even at her young age, she's like probably like 10, she rejects all of the notoriety that's supposed to come with being royalty. She kind of just wants to go out, climb trees, have fun, go in and go on an adventure. And play with her little droid Lola, who is so cute. Um, Let's talk about Vivian Blair as Leia for a minute. I've seen some people who don't like her online, and I just think those people are wrong. Uh, Vivian Blair is a wonderful Leia. And I think I do not want to be so bold as to be like, oh, Carrie Fisher would be proud because, you know, Carrie Fisher has left us so long ago. But I truly think she would be proud. I think Vivian Blair nails every note of who Leia is her staunch diplomacy, her sense of humor, her sense of poise. But at the same time, she's like 10. And like she, there's that great scene where like she runs into the marketplace and she's like the giant, like Bigfoot looking creature and realizes that there's so much more to herself that she has to be, you know, dealing with. And then the great scene later on where she realizes that Obi-Wan is a Jedi. I think that's such a beautiful bit of like subtle. There's the pause after she says, you, you're a Jedi. And I'm like, that's, that is exactly how a child would react to that. And I just think she's doing such a wonderful job. And I hope we see more of like, the chase element slash the kind of weird camaraderie bond between her and Obi-Wan that they're developing. Someone pointed out to me that like the majority of promotional materials we've gotten have been from the first two episodes. So going to the next four, we are in the dark. That's that's so true. Yeah, that just hit me. Because when everybody, you know, the meme went around of him looking through those visors or whatever he had, like <laughs> yeah. those, uh, those things. And he was just watching Luke. Like um, we see all these teases from the trailer. I'm so happy that they're done now because- First two episodes are out. A lot of the material we've already got. Rest of the series is open playing field for our own imagination as well as for what they're going to execute and bring to us. Like, does Vader take it on himself? We don't know. We'll just have to stay tuned. 
Um, again, Obi-Wan Kenobi is dropping week by week. I will be done, I believe, in mid-June, maybe late June. Uh, but it's six episodes, each dropping week by week, and we encourage you guys to go check that out as well. We are gushing over and I can't wait for where it goes. Hold on, Brandon. Last question, okay? Because I have an idea. We should have like a plot devices pod bet because how many times do you think Vader and Obi-Wan fight? Fight or interact? I want to say fight because imagine him tailing Obi-Wan and Leia and Obi-Wan at this stage, he can't kill Anakin. He cannot kill Vader. What if he just gets close to that point and, and they have that kind of, that repeated struggle? What do you think? How many times are they fighting? I would absolutely bet you the whole, like, when is Obi-Wan going to pull out his lightsaber? It's going to be the duel of Vader. It's absolutely going to be that. I think they're going to interact more than they fight. I will put it as they interact three times, they fight once. And I'm going to go the other side of the seesaw. They are fighting, not twice, but at least three different times. Um, And... And, and I'm talking like not in the same episode. I'm talking like in different environments. Like this scene, uh, it's a small, you know, click, click, force, force. <laughs> and then later on, it's the, of course, the longer ultimate fight. But, but who knows? You know, maybe Vader is just a plot device. Maybe he's just something ah. there. Um, and maybe actually the real menace of this show is going to be the third sister because we've already seen how effective she is and how menacing she is to her own crew. What if she's the big bad for the Kenobi series? I can I can easily see that. You know, we, we expect Vader to fill so many roles. What if he doesn't fill this one? I would love it if we get, number one, a female woman of color as our villain, which is already great, but a female woman of color who gets to be complex and messy. And by the end of it, like, let's say we have that, that sneak peek of the trailer where like Vader and Obi-Wan are confronting each other. Reva swoops in and is like, no, this is my kill. Like he yeah. left our... Like he left our people, like he needs to pay. And then they're just like, no. And then while he's dealing with Reva, Obi-Wan runs away. Like that might be the ending. Oh, okay. We are good for rap. <laughs> I had to ask that though. I had to see there was still more. We, we had to juice out of these two episodes. Um, it, it's a lot. And I could go on for days, but we've already gone for a lot of time with this. But thank you all so much for tuning into this episode, episode 28 of Plot Devices. Listen, do us a quick favor if you would. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or RSS feed at Plot Devices. Go follow us there. And our social media feeds at Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. From our social media manager and my wonderful co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, is there anything you'd like to plug that's going on in your life that people should know about? Um, you can follow us on TikTok at Plot Devices Pod. Follow myself. I am on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. You guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow my work on ASU Odyssey as well. I've got reviews for Top Gun Maverick and Emergency that should be up by the time you're listening to this. Uh, go follow my band, Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. And again, my accounts at the Movie King 45, Twitter and Instagram as well. So with that being said, for episode 28 of Plot Devices, thank you guys so much for tuning in. My name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman, and we will catch you guys next time. <laughs>